0: Second Corinthians chapter 11, Paul is continuing here what he began in chapter 10, where he is now addressing this smaller segment in the church, the sum of these false teachers and apostles who had set up both false teaching and practice within the church and were personally attacking the apostle. Uh, he is not insecure about who he is or his work in the Lord, but he is worried about the church, so he is addressing those issues. So he says in verse 1 Oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly, and indeed you do bear with me, for I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear, lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. So, Paul here now Is going to address some more of his fears and some of the actions of this group. So he begins again in verse 1 saying, Oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly, and indeed you do bear with me, saying you've been putting up with me here, and they're listening to this letter being read. But he's going to now interact with this group. Uh, Paul had just at the end of chapter 10 said, It doesn't matter what any person boasts of themselves." because one day we're all going to stand before God and only what he commends is going to matter. But this group has been boasting of themselves and apparently has won the confidence of the Corinthians to some level. And as commending themselves and boasting in themselves, Paul is essentially saying, I am now going to take a similar foolish course. (laughs) This is what has been happening And I'm going to do something similar, although we're going to see the whole point is Paul's boasting is the exact opposite of what these people would be boasting about. So he's not even boasting in the same way, but he is really kind of stooping down to a different type of, uh, I'll say, communication. Something that I don't think he really likes to do, but he is making a point while doing it. So he's going to say a number of times, like, just bear with me now and show the foolishness of what he's doing for. And here's why he's doing this. He says in verse two, for I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Paul is saying here, here's why we're even having this discussion or I'm writing these things because I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. Notice, jealous for the corinthians he's not jealous of the corinthians there there is i think most of the time we speak about jealousy uh it's always kind of in a negative aspect you have something that somebody else wants you're just jealous or some type of dramatic relationship thing or in some adulterous situation there's there's a, there's usually a negative connotation to our talk of jealousy uh and A lot of times those things are true and wrong, but Paul acknowledges here that there is a godly jealousy, and the Bible tells us very directly that God is a jealous God. Just like God can be angry, and he doesn't sin in his anger, there is a jealousy that is not wrong in and of itself. And Paul says, the reason I'm doing this right now is because I have a godly jealousy for you. He was jealous for God's work in the Corinthian lives. And the Bible says our God is a jealous God. Right? In Exodus 20, the beginning of the Ten Commandments, one of the things he says is, You shall not bow down to them nor serve them idols. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And the reason God is both jealous and can be jealous is because He knows the best thing for us is him. Humans can be jealous for the wrong reasons and with the wrong type of jealousy. But God is perfect. And we were created for his pleasure and to be in relationship with him. So he knows that being stolen away from anything that steals a human being away from God Almighty, their creator and savior, is actually something negative. And God, as perfect, can't live as indifferent to distance with those that he loves and he knows he's best for. Just like a parent shouldn't be indifferent to what happens with their child or the influences in their child's life. Or a spouse shouldn't be indifferent to the connections that their spouse has. God can't be indifferent to human beings. He knows he's the best thing for us. Now, sometimes we want him to be indifferent. I was reading not that long ago, somebody was talking about the Lord's Prayer and saying, our Father who art in heaven. And he said, the reality is uh, a good father is going to be actively involved in somebody's life because they love them. But sometimes we want God to be kind of like the uncle. Because an uncle just shows up and has a bunch of fun with you and then goes home and lets you do whatever you want, right? Right. He said, people want to pray our uncle who art in heaven. That's not what the scripture says. It's our father who art in heaven. There's a different type of relationship there. And God, as a jealous God, understands fidelity to him is felicity to us. If I'm faithful to him, if I'm connected to him in the right way, it is my highest joy and happiness and blessing." So he's jealous over that. There's not a single person in this room that he is disinterested if we begin to slide from him. Nor will he be happy allowing us to run our lives outside of him. He didn't shed his blood on the cross. The father didn't give that unspeakable gift of his son so that we could happily live at a distance from him. So what Paul says is what what god has has come down to him i'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy the thing that's in the lord he's put in my heart and paul is jealous that there is nothing that begins to pull these corinthians away from god not him if if they walked with god but they had something wrong with him in the end paul would know they'd be all right but he's worried here that something is getting in between them and the Lord. So he illustrates that by saying, notice again, I've betrothed you in verse 2 to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Paul is saying, I've set up in essence an arranged marriage between you and Jesus. You're already betrothed to him. And I want you to be faithful to him. I want there to be purity in that relationship. He wants to present them as loyal in that covenant relationship. Now, again, remember, this this is being said to a fellowship that had a fair share of issues. But Paul wants them to see themselves as connected to Jesus Christ and him alone. And know that they had everything they could need in connection with Jesus. And he knows these false teachers... And what they're doing is connecting them, these Corinthians, to themselves and to things that aren't godly. So he's, he's not okay with that. So he has to write this. He's not disinterested in what's happening in their lives. And the reality is, when God works in our lives, we begin to talk about the church People talk about churches all the time and throw out very broad strokes, and we can all do this, but the church is people. That's what it is. It's not the name, it's not Calvary Chapel or Methodist or Baptist or Catholic. It's the beings that are called out and made saints and going to be family in heaven for eternity. And God is very jealous over those individuals and the groups that they make up on the face of the earth. And when you become like him, you receive that jealousy. You care about folks, and you care about his bride. And when somebody begins to have a bad attitude about the bride of Christ because of imperfections, you could tell it's not godly. Because this is Paul the Apostle saying this to a church that had a whole lot of issues. And many of them were even actively slandering him when they had no reason to. He was literally their spiritual father. And he looks at them, and he has a godly jealousy for them. God has settled this in his heart. And he can't stand the thought of anything coming in and ruining the relationship that's been set up between this group of believers and Jesus Christ. Can't stand that. So he has to say these things. He has to address this. And Paul's fear, he's going to say it very easily here, verse three. But I fear lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Paul's fear was that they'd be disloyal to Christ. Because they were led astray through the craftiness of the enemy. They'd be caught in his arguments. He goes all the way back to the beginning. What did Satan do when he showed up and he tempted Eve through his craftiness? How did he even make that happen? Well, Very interestingly, it's through what Paul had just been talking about. Those thoughts, carnal imaginations, high things, pretensions that had to be cast down. Satan had a conversation. There was God's voice in the world to Adam. Then another being came into the world, Eve. God spoke with Adam and to Eve as well. And then this other voice came in. And began to question God's voice. Another influence. A thought that had never been in their head before was now put in their head. They can't trust this guy. Maybe his word isn't correct. An argument came in. Another source to add doubt, to add question. And Paul's afraid That just like Satan did with Eve back in the Garden of Eden, these false teachers, their conversations, their arguments, their high things that they would lift up that would be against the knowledge of God would lead these believers astray. That their minds, he said, would be corrupted. The minds being corrupted is just really starting to disbelieve the truth and believe a lie. You've been corrupted. What's there, the truth, has been corrupted. Like a metal can be corrupted. What is there that they needed is no longer held to. I'll also just make a side point here. Paul obviously believes the Genesis record is not an allegory, that these things actually happen, and that these are all real beings and events. First Timothy 2 picks up the same thing, but Paul's fear here is, Look, I'm afraid this is happening to you. That you're going to be led astray from Christ by Satan. Not by some, you know, playing with a Ouija board or something like that. right? We think of all these other things. Not because he offered you drugs or because, because of the thoughts that he's going to put in your head. The craftiness that he comes through where he adds doubts and arguments. And things that are going to lead you astray. From the simplicity that's in Christ, some no longer hold to simple truths. I remember going to a, uh, uh, a dinner that they had where a pastor had just written a new book um, about the Word of God, was talking about his own personal testimony. And he said, I got to a college where he was going um, for Bible Uh, seminary and essentially said the the professor got up there and said I am going to blow up all the things your mommies and daddies and Sunday school teachers taught you when you were a kid and he said he just worked to basically systematically try to break down and destroy everybody's thoughts their trust in the word of God and what we can know from it Now, he talked about how the Lord helped him work through these things and holding on to Timothy, saying that the word was inspired, breathed by God, and God was faithful and helped him do that. But he talked about the pressure of that attack. And the enemy wants to come into people's lives, and he wants to attack the simple things. It's too easy. There's got to be more to it there. The simplicity that we have in Jesus Christ Adal Sefer in his book, Our Life Day, says this. The difficulty which the Apostle Paul seems to have felt with all his congregations was to convince them of the perfection of Christ and the all-sufficiency, simplicity, and comprehensiveness of the gospel of grace. Our tendency is first to lower Christ, then feel the necessity for something in addition to this self-made conception of the Savior. Come to Jesus is the first message to the sinner. It continues to be the divine message to the believer. Jesus is our righteousness, our life, and the hope of glory. And our great and lifelong task is to abide in the simplicity that is into Christ. All types of things out there that want to make you Somehow lower Jesus, your thoughts, your ideas of who he is. And then you got to add something else in there because you have a false version of who he is. You got to add something else in there to be happy. You got to add something else in there to find meaning. You got to add something else in there to find identity. And without those things, you can't really have true simplicity in life. Simplicity has the idea of just fullness. Something that is whole. It is what it is. Doesn't need a whole lot of extra stuff. And in our lives, life is a war to keep the simplicity that is in Christ. Singleness of heart and of a mind. A simple childlike faith. Not childish, but childlike faith in the truths of the word of God. We can get caught up in a lot of other things. And if we feel kind of hectic and all over the place, that's not from the Holy Spirit. He's not developing that in your life. Christ is not developing complexity in our lives. He's developing simplicity. That doesn't mean your life is boring. I don't think anybody could watch Paul the Apostle's life and say it was boring. But it was pretty simple, actually his goals, his heart, what he wanted, how he lived. It wasn't, it wasn't complex in that regard. Christ is deep. The truths of the scripture are deep, but they're also simple. And if we can look at our lives and just say, am I loving God more? Am I loving Christ more? Does this thing help me love God more and Christ more? That's the greatest commandment. Does it help me love those around me more? That's a pretty simple way. To think about it. Are we dumping his word more? Man, it's so easy to have life get complicated. And I think the world that we live in loves complication, loves being busy, loves not having to think its own thoughts or to think very seriously about life, except we all need that. 1 Thessalonians 4, I love this scripture. I think it helps put things in perspective. Verses 11 and 12 say this. Here's what Paul says. And think, just think, can you do this? That you aspire to lead a quiet life. How often do you see that message out there? Aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business. To work with your own two hands. Have an honorable job. Work with your own two hands as we commanded you, and walk properly towards those who are outside, that you may lack nothing. Right? Like what do you want from life? Paul says that's what you should aim for. Aspire to lead a quiet life. It's pretty simple. Work with your own two hands. Is it day in, day out? Sometimes you feel like, man, what am I even doing? Is this does this even matter? Well, the scriptures command us. Yeah, work with your own two hands. Are you working an honest job? You're pleasing God. You're leading a simple life. Mind your own business. And that can add a lot of peace. And people do not mind. They get caught up in all these things. They're all hype about so many issues. And none of them are their own business. Right? We're all over online in everybody else's business. We're upset if people aren't in our business. Right? But, you know, I think you can think, wow, you know, is that really that wrong? Well, if it's not your own business, it is. How do you know it's your business? Well, do you interact with it? Is it your responsibility? Do you feel responsibility toward it then? right? The Corinthian church was Paul's business. He had just said, this is my field. This is my lane. This is what God called me to. So he's going to interact with it. But every church wasn't his business. So he didn't do this with every church. He didn't write this to every church. The lives that you're looking at or involved in, are they your business? Are you going to interact with them in a Christian way? Are you going to respond the way that you should? Looking at their posts online, are you going to now live the, a Christian disciple type of life toward that individual? Is it your business to do that? If not, then it's not your business. Mind your business. <laughs> It'll make life a lot simpler. People talk to me about issues all the time. I'm like, I had no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> you're really stressed about it, but I don't know what you're talking about. Paul's afraid. Paul's afraid that this church is being caught up in a lot of things that are corrupting them from the simplicity that's in Christ. They weren't their concern. Or they were the wrong types of concerns for their lives. And he's afraid that that's how the enemy's working in them. He says, verse 4, For if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. He's like, I'm actually afraid about your willingness to put up with people that would do these three things, that these false teachers are coming in, and you, you're you okay with it. Now, I think there was a cultural pressure to be knowledgeable in the philosophies of the world. We already know that from 1 Corinthians, and that kind of area – the Greek culture, to talk about these various types of things and philosophy. That was something that they liked. And Paul's worried. He's like, I'm worried you're just going to put up with people who come in and do these things. And the three things he mentions, part of the three major lines of Satan's crafty corruption coming into believers' lives are these. The first thing, notice he says, he's going to come preach another Jesus whom we have not preached. A Jesus of people's own making. A different Jesus, not the Jesus of the the Bible or the Jesus that Paul preached. A Jesus that they made up. A Jesus conformed into their own image and likeness. Jesus made like us versus us being conformed into his image and likeness. There's a lot of people out there who like to talk about God, but it's not the God of the Bible. It's their own God. And they pick and choose the things they like as God a la carte. And I like to believe in this God, and they can be very offended if you tell them they don't believe in God. But it's important, Paul says, that we don't listen to somebody who preaches another Jesus. Sadly, there's churches out there filled with people who aren't saved. Because there's another Jesus preached. And it's not the Jesus of the Bible. Or the Jesus who was named Jesus, as we'll read in the Christmas story, because he was going to save his people from their sins. A Jesus that had to die and shed his blood on a cross. A Jesus that's an unspeakable gift. And there's a lot of other Jesuses out there. I guess I would ask somebody who's maybe thinking about how they would know is I think there's a difference between asking somebody, do you believe in God and do you believe God? Those are two different things. To say I believe in God doesn't really mean anything. The Bible says the demons believe in God. But do you believe God, particularly the God of the Bible? Do I believe what he says about himself? Will I allow him to define himself to me? That becomes the essential question of life. Do I believe what Jesus says about Jesus? You don't have to believe what I say about Jesus. You should believe what Jesus says about Jesus. There's a whole lot of people who talk about Jesus have no clue what Jesus says about Jesus. Do I believe God? Do I believe what God says about himself, about the world I live in, about culture, about morals, about my origin, and about my destiny? Do I believe what God says about meaning in life and about the meaning of my life? Do I believe God? And then i got to look at his word and see what he says. I can't just make up my own God or my own Jesus, because then I don't have the true God or the true Jesus. I have something else, another Jesus. Paul says next, a different spirit. They come with something other than the Holy Spirit. Well, I'm sure this had a bunch of different forms, but Paul was clear about this. First Corinthians twelve three says, therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the spirit of God calls Jesus a curse and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. These people knew they had the Holy Spirit. Paul would say to the Galatians, Galatians three two, this only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by the hearing of faith? They knew they had the spirit. He said, how did you receive the Holy Spirit? By works of the law, did you do something? Or by faith, how did you receive the spirit? Again, Romans 8, 9, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. So Paul's saying this becomes a discussion about a totally different spirit. We're not talking about the Holy Spirit anymore. We're talking about some other spirit in the world. Some other, whatever you want to call it, vibe that's out there. Not. What the Bible says the Holy Spirit is. And I can tell God has changed my life and worked in my life when I have the Holy Spirit. When Christ lives in me through the Holy Spirit. And if I don't have the Holy Spirit, not his. And there's a lot of ministries out there that have a different spirit. And I could say you can figure that out by what they emphasize, not by what they say. Or not what their doctrinal statement is. There's a lot of churches that have a wonderful doctrinal statement. Or people that might have a nice doctrinal statement. But what do they believe enough to emphasize? What do they believe enough to really show over and over and over again? That's what they actually believe. That's what their true spirit is. And the last thing he says is a different gospel a different type of good news. It's not the good news that Jesus gives, the gospel that Paul was giving. It's usually something with a works-based righteousness. It's not salvation comes through the work of Jesus Christ alone. Salvation comes through Jesus and dietary law and becoming a Jew and getting baptized and whatever else you want to add. It's not just the gospel anymore. It's a different gospel. A gospel with no cross. A gospel with no shame. A gospel with no cost. A gospel with no warnings. Jesus and something else. And scripture warns us, and I think this is very important, that teachers of false doctrine are different than just a normal sinner. And what I mean by that is this. The warnings given to people who willingly pervert the truth are far sterner than the warnings given even to somebody who's just in regular moral sin. And the fact that people put up with false doctrine and teaching is no virtue to God Almighty. And now people could take this too far, right? You know... They make everything a false doctrine. Like, you guys have pews in your church. You're in sin. Okay, like, you're a little crazy here, right? But we're talking about these, a a false Christ, a false gospel, a false spirit, the major things that we're talking about here. When you get to that position, Scripture is very serious. In fact, Paul would write to Titus and say, Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning and being self-condemned. The person comes in and preaches another Jesus. He says, Reject them after the first and second admonition. What did Jesus say? If a person sins against you and repents, how many times do you have to forgive him? Seventy times seven. Well, this is very different. What do you mean after the, Paul's coming in and saying to these false teachers, now what you're teaching is wrong, and that needs to change. And if it doesn't change, he'll say it again. And if it doesn't change, now we have a problem. And there's a rejection. The Bible even pronounces anathema. Paul will say, I don't care if an angel shows up and preaches another gospel, let that angel be anathema, accursed, eternally damned. It doesn't say that about a person caught in sexual sin. I'm not saying that's something that's not serious. But what I am saying is the Bible is very serious. If a person perverts the place of salvation for the moral sinner and leaves them with no place to go, God considers that very serious. Right? Because a moral sinner, the person who recognizes, man, I'm a drug addict, I'm a prostitute. I'm a stripper. I'm a tax collector. I'm just a prideful jerk. I need to be saved. And you give me another gospel, I have no place of salvation. You give me the true gospel, I have a place of forgiveness, cleansing, washing, new life. You give me another Jesus, I have no hope. The Bible takes that really seriously. And Paul is very concerned for this church I'm concerned. I'm concerned you'll put up with somebody like this. And he wants them to recognize these things. Now, he's going to begin this discussion about the differences between him and them. He says, for I consider that I am not at all inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I am untrained in speech, yet I am not in knowledge. But we have been thoroughly manifested among you in all things. Now, there's a little discussion here. Some people When he says, I'm not at all inferior to the most eminent apostles, is he talking about the legitimate apostles, like Peter and John and them, or is he talking about these false apostles? The word eminent, the idea there is almost super apostles, it seems like he's making an ironic statement, and I would lean from the context toward that, that he's not talking about Peter, James, and John, and it doesn't seem like that was the issue anyway. It's these false teachers, which he's going to refer to in verse 6, so I mean, that makes the best sense here. And Paul acknowledges, I'm, I'm not inferior to them. I might be, says in six, in training. Paul says, I don't have their speech. Again, the Greeks were trained in rhetoric and philosophy. And Paul just acknowledges, I wasn't trained in that type of speech. And He didn't use that on purpose anyway because he already told them, I purposely didn't come to you with those types of words so that your faith would rest in the power of God and not in the wisdom of men. But he acknowledges, I wasn't lesser than them in my knowledge, the truth that he brought to them, the gospel he preached, the message of Jesus. And he says, I trust that we are thoroughly manifested among you. Then he says in verse 7, he's going to, address this issue of money, which is apparently a big thing then and remains a big thing just about everywhere. He says, did I commit sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel to you free of charge? And it's not that he literally didn't charge the money. What he's going to say here is I worked and covered my own expenses. I didn't have you support me in ministry. That's what he means free of charge. I robbed other churches, taking wages from them to minister to you. Not that he literally robbed churches. The idea is I wasn't receiving support from you. I was taking it from other places that they didn't really need to be giving it to me. Verse 9. And when I was present with you and in need, I was a burden to no one. For what I lacked the brethren who came from Macedonia supplied. And in everything I kept myself from being burdensome to you. And so I will keep myself. And as the truth of Christ is in me, no one shall stop me from this boasting in the regions of the Kai. Why? Because I do not love you. Well, God knows. So Paul's going to say he differs from this super apostle group in terms of how they handled money. And again, they're just it seems to be they're always uh, constantly condemning Paul's virtues as failures. Because he was led of the Lord, and he didn't show up when he said, I might show up. They thought he was untrustworthy. Paul's yay, yay. Yay is nay, and nay is yay. You can't trust the things this guy says. Because he supported himself in ministry, he loved them less. Because he wasn't demanding money, he seemed like a lesser apostle. Because he was pleading with them in meekness and gentleness, then he was feeble and weak. Because he was writing in letters inspired by the Holy Spirit, they say, "Ah, oh, you're just a coward. You're not let, like that when you're a person, right? Like everything the guy did, they basically slandered. Which, of course, if you find yourself honoring God and doing the right thing and you get slandered for it, join the club. This is a good club to be a part of, right? It's going to happen to everybody. So Paul can't really do anything right. He didn't accept money at a number of places. This wasn't just Corinth and Thessalonica. We know he didn't accept money. In Ephesus, we know he didn't accept money. He worked with his own two hands. He made tents. He had a number of reasons for that. He wanted to set an example for the churches. He says in 2 Thessalonians 3, he wanted to keep from being a burden to these fledgling churches. He'll say in chapter 12, he never wanted to hinder the gospel, which he wrote in 1 Corinthians 9. He never wanted to be a stumbling block. You never want people to say, Paul's doing this just for the money. So he says, I'm going to continue to do this. Yeah, I know I didn't receive money from you. And they use that against Paul. But he said, I'm going to continue to do it. It is going to be my boast. And he basically asked him at the end, why why would I even do that? It would have been way easier just to take money. (laughs) He's like, why would I even do this? Because I don't love you? He says, God knows, right? Of course. And this would, again, put him in contrast with these false teachers who were demanding money, even though they weren't the ones who started or built up the church. So, again, Paul's going to build on that, verse 12. But what I do, I will also continue to do. That I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be gar- to be regarded just as we are in the things of which they boast. Paul's saying of this minority group, these super apostles, the those here he's talking about, they're they're involved in this foolish boasting. He's saying I'm going to continue to live this way because I don't want those who are not like us, to be regarded as just as we are in the things of which they boast. So he's going to say, I'm going to keep doing this, and my boast is that I don't receive money because I don't want to stumble anybody. What's their boast? This could be the exact opposite, that we're so deserving, you should give us money. He said, this is, and it wasn't just Paul. He's going to mention Titus later, Timothy, these other men who were involved. They lived the same type of lives and had the same type of example and he wants them to see that these false teachers are not the same in heart or in calling i want that to be obvious 13 here's and here's why for such are false apostles deceitful workers transforming themselves into apostles of christ paul makes it clear these are the super apostles are fake apostles fake in both heart, and in ministry. They aren't called of God. And he gives a pretty uh, stern critique here by saying that they are, uh, in verse 13 there, not only deceitful workers, but transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. They're not, they're not what God made them. They are self-made. They're not transformed into his image and likeness. They're making themselves into something. They're presenting something that is in and of itself false. And, look, there are false apostles then. Guess what? There's still false apostles now. There are a lot of people out there who call themselves apostles that are not apostles. Revelation 2.2, Jesus writes to the church and says, I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them to be liars. Jesus Christ approves this church that he writes to in Revelation because he says you test a bunch of false apostles and you prove them to be liars. We should be able to look at who the false apostles are. Notice verse 14. Paul will say, and no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. Now, again, a lot of people begin to theologically talk about, well, what does it mean that Satan can transform himself into an angel of light? What does that look like? And, you know, there's certainly ways that you can make application of that. We know there's a lot of uh, false teachings and cults out there that began with supposedly an appearance of some type of angel. Uh, The Mormons began that way. The Jehovah's Witnesses began that way with Charles Russell. There's a lot of false cults out there that maybe something supernatural happened. And a satanic being showed up like an angel of light and gave them another gospel. Another Jesus. But what Paul's talking about here is not necessarily the supernatural. It's the natural guys who have a supernatural power behind them, but are teaching things that are satanic. Who are, the idea is, the likable apostles of our day. This is not people that have pitchforks and red skin. You don't look at them and say, oh man, There's a demonic being. That's the whole point. They, he says, transform themselves. They present themselves as something likable. And they are likable, satanic, false apostles. That's what he's saying here. That's that's what he's worrying about. The evil, lying, false apostles of our day. Who are they? We should be able to know and test them and see that they're liars. By their message of Christ, by the spirit they minister in, by the gospel that they preach, by how they respond to the word of God. And there's a lot of people out there, sadly, that don't do that. And they're being corrupted from the simplicity that they have in Jesus Christ. By following false apostles. I will say this. When the Antichrist comes, the ultimate false apostle, he will be quite likable. In fact, he will deceive the world, the scripture says. And the two distinguishing factors of his ministry will be worldly material peace and miraculous works of supernatural power. Those are going to be the two things that most define him. Can I just say that if money and supernatural power become the too large emphasis of your present-day ministry, you're probably a false apostle. And I think the world's getting set up for the guy who's going to come and put that on the biggest stage. There's a lot of people even in Christian realms that love those two messages, worldly material benefit and peace and supernatural acts of miraculous power Those become the emphasis, and Christ is not the emphasis. Satan's pretty crafty. But what will be the end of it all, Paul says, notice, whose end will be according to their works. I want my end to be according to Christ's works. (laughs) Their end will be according to their works, that God knows. Works in their heart, works behind the stage the works that they actually have when the microphone's not on. Because they're not really simple people walking in the simplicity of Christ, leading a quiet life, mind their own business, working with their own two hands. If that's your testimony at the end of your life, that guy loved Jesus. He was a simple guy, simple lady that loved the Lord. Man, you did it right. This group here... They're flashy, but they're complicated, and they're dangerous. Now, Paul says this. I say again, let no one think me a fool in 16. If otherwise at least receive me as a fool, that I may also boast a little. He's still moving along this section saying again, hey, I know this is foolish. What I speak, I speak not according to the Lord, but as it were foolishly. In this confidence of boasting, and Paul is admitting this is out of the character of Christ. Christ didn't have to walk around like this. Uh, He's not saying he's not inspired anymore. What he's saying is, this is foolish to have to boast this way. Uh, And Paul will say, again, 18, seeing that many boast according to the flesh, I also will boast. They're boasting in the flesh. Paul's going to boast, but his boasts again, will be different. For you put up with fools gladly, since you yourselves are wise. For you put up with it if one brings you into bondage, if one devours you, if one takes from you, if one exalts himself, and if one strikes you on the face. Sad, like this is the scenario they've come into. These false apostles have, noticed, led them into bondage. They're in slavery to things now. Devours you. Devour has the idea of exploiting. Jesus would rebuke the Pharisees saying, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses. Taking advantage of people, many out there, taking advantage of older folk or widows or people who aren't savvy to technological things. They're devouring... Sadly, it's a, you know, they're exalting themselves. They're taking from others. And he even goes to, at the end of 20, those who strike you on the face. Not only are they evil liars here, the Corinthians are putting up with so much, even literally being slapped in the face. These uh, false apostles uh, have so much apostleship that they can treat them that harshly. Ungodly, assertive men who are literally abusive in their ministry. Now, 1 Timothy chapter 3 says a bishop must not be violent or be quarrelsome. So a real minister of the Lord is not either of those two things. Not violent or quarrelsome. But this is who these men are. Paul says at the end, to our shame, I say, we are too weak for that. Are you guys like that type of ministry? Sorry, I'm too weak to do that. I'm not going to put you in bondage. I'm not going to take from you. I'm not going to slap you in the face. I guess I'm just not bold enough. or I'm going to have to boast in my weakness to be unable to do that to you. But in whatever anyone is bold, I speak foolishly. I am bold also. Are they bold? I'm bold too. He says in 22 here, he's going to go into this long refrain that many of us are familiar with. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they of the seed of Abraham? So am I. The idea here is um, it seems like most of these false teachers are part of the Judaizers. They're people with a Jewish background. And they're obviously boasting in that Jewish background and saying they are some type of special spiritual group because of it. Because of their Jewish heritage. Again, this stuff is still out there today. They're Christians who begin to grow in their walk with the Lord and then they begin to caught up in these Hebrew kind of roots, various things and think they're going to be more holy by going back to these various Jewish roots, which everybody is leaving for Christendom and being persecuted for it. Paul's saying, why am I being persecuted and they're being more Jewish and being received? He says, I have those things too. Verse 23, are they ministers of Christ? Well, I speak as a fool. I am more, in labors, more abundant, in stripes above measures, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. Paul's going to begin to lay out the character of his ministry, similar to what he does in First Corinthians four, where again he says, "Man, you guys are living like kings, but us apostles, look at us. We're getting threatened with death all the time. We're thrown in prison. We're being beaten." I don't know how you guys have arrived and we're still over here doing this stuff. And and the, the theme here, again, is this, is this is what Paul has to boast in. Their boasting, these false teachers, is very different. They're not boasting in any of these things. And Paul is boasting in these things because, as a minister of Christ, this is what he had to go through. This is what true ministry looked like. Now again i'll say we can read through this list and we will and it can feel depressing and you can read through and be like i'm not a real christian because none of you know these things aren't happening to me and if they were i'd probably give up <laughs> the the point here is paul is not comparing genuine ministry with genuine ministry his point is he's comparing the genuine ministry of christ that god has called him to with false apostles and showing the different character of those two things so Yes, every true Christian minister is going to have their fair share of persecution in their day and age. Everybody is not supposed to go through what Paul went through. But all those who will live godly in Christ Jesus shall face persecution. We're all going to face our share. And the question is, do we do it with the faithfulness that Paul had? or Are we looking for something else? And is our message something else? That's the challenge, I think, for us. Really, I think probably any of the apostles could have put together a list similar to this, as many Christians around the world. But Paul was a unique example of suffering. So he goes through. He says again, verse 24, from the Jews five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Uh, Again, they would usually use 39 lashes. Uh, Most people believe they had kind of a thing with three cords on it, so every lash would be, one hit would be three lashes, so they could 13, which would get you to 39, quick math. So it was related to Deuteronomy 25 and some of the laws there, but this happened to Paul numerous times. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked, and night and day I had been in the deep, We don't know about any of these. The one we do know about is in the book of Acts, and it happens after this. So these are previous shipwrecks and things. In journeys often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen. I think, uh, particularly for Paul, that had to be very difficult. It's easy to read about these other things and skip over the perils of his own countrymen. Uh and almost everywhere he went, some Jews were chasing him down causing riots. Happened over and over and over again in the book of Acts. And Paul's heart was for his own people, and they were the ones who were the hardest and most constantly against him. And I think to honor to have to honor and serve Christ and be slandered as a betrayer of one's own culture and roots is difficult. But again, even in our day and age, black, white, Indian, Asian, if you're going to be true to what the word of God says and serve him, somebody's going to slam you that you're not being faithful to your culture, or your roots somehow. It's just constant. I think it was difficult for Paul just to say, literally, my own countrymen are chasing me around everywhere I go. They're, they're the ones who are persecuting him. Acts twenty one twenty one. even when he went back to Jerusalem, that was what they worried about. Oh, you're going around telling everybody not to follow Moses anymore, not to get circumcised, not to... It was a slander that was constantly following Paul around. It was difficult for him. Perils of his own countrymen, perils of Gentiles, perils in the city, perils in the wilderness, perils in the sea, perils among false brethren... In weariness and in toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, fastings often, in cold and nakedness. So this threat of danger and physical hardships, the perils constantly there. It was not always safe to do what Paul was doing. Just, again, you want to serve Christ around the world? The only consideration cannot be safety. It, it needs to be a consideration. And plenty of disciples left places when they faced persecution, But Paul walked in the situations he knew were dangerous. If you want to minister in our own city, you're going to be in peril. The the reality is, Christians, they're going to minister in certain places. They're going to have to face peril. Paul says, everywhere I went. And I had physical hardships, weariness, toil, sleeplessness, hunger, thirst, fastings often, cold, nakedness. Again, we can easily pass these things over. Paul's probably naked when he was thrown in prison, stripped naked, humiliated, when he was beaten with rods or whipped. Yeah, what it would be like to be stripped naked out in public somewhere, humiliated, and then go back in that same city and try to preach the gospel. These things were difficult. Besides the other things that come upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches, this, again, care of the christian and what they face constantly comes out in paul he has such a heart for believers and you know as a guy who faced persecution i think he had a huge heart for any other christian going through persecution hey man i got beaten with rods just a week ago (laughs) i've been thrown in prison this many times i've been that paul had empathy you're gonna serve the lord in peril i've been there and, and, and then the greater concern that the people in the middle of all these things were being led away by these false teachers who weren't going through any of this, who didn't care in that type of way. There was no heart in them that so cared for the church and a soul that they would have went through any of these things to start the church at Corinth. And Paul says that just weighed on him daily, this compassion. And the true love for God and true love for others are always going to coincide. But a burden of a heart is going to come with it. But that burden makes life better. We can, we can isolate ourselves so that we don't have to feel the care for other people. But the more you begin to carry with you what God thinks of a single soul and what he thinks of a son or daughter in Christ, the more you're going to have to care. And we do that in every scenario. F. W. Borum writes a, an article called The Luggage of Life where he talks about Naomi sending home Ruth and Orpah and telling them to go find rest in their husband's household. And he's like, what type of woman ever found rest in a husband's household? That's where you find all your busyness. They say, you can have rest. You could, if you have a bunch of kids, you could have rest if you didn't have that kid anymore. But if the room's quiet and there's nothing to clean up, it's not really rest. If you lose the connection, the heart, the person, right? what? The the burden is the luggage of life. It's it's what life is about. Would life be better for Paul if he didn't have the care for souls and for the church? The type of care that would drive him to serve the Lord and to go through these things? He says, on top of all these other things, this care is on me constantly. But he would never want it gone, knowing the value of those things. And he finishes up saying, Who is weak and am I not weak? This is his empathy. When I see a weak believer, I, I feel that. Who is made to stumble and I do not burn with indignation? When he, when he sees a believer stumbling, he's burning, his heart is connected. He says, if I must boast, I will boast in the things that concern my infirmity. And the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows I'm not lying. He says, if I'm forced to have this type of conversation, if I'm forced to boast about these things, they're going to commend themselves. Well, let me commend myself. Here's all my weakness. Here's all the things I've barely made it through. (laughs) Here's all the things that God has led me through. Yes, here's why I'm not accepting money from you. Because I love you. Here's, here's why I'm doing what I'm doing. And if I have to boast, this is how I'll boast. And it was totally opposite of what these men would be and who these men were. And they were supposed to see that. And he says very clearly, I, I say it before the Lord, before God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not lying. God knows. And then he finishes with these funny verses. He says, in Damascus, the governor under Aretas, the king was guarding the city of Damascus with a garrison desiring to arrest me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped from his hands. People have a lot of guesses as to why Paul finished this way. I'm not really sure. So, you know, this happened either right after he came to Damascus in Acts 9 when he was saved... Either it was then, or we know from Galatians chapter one verse seventeen, he went to Arabia, and after those years, he came back to Damascus. So it was one of those two periods. We're not sure which. Either would be early in his ministry, but apparently he was there and he was ministering. Either way, and they wanted to catch him and kill him, throw him in prison. And he says they had to, many times houses would be on the wall. They had to literally put me in a basket. And like, you know, lower me down in a basket outside the wall. And I think what he's doing is just, this is my guess, he's just giving a wild summary of his apostolic ministry, right? Here am I, the confident, prideful persecutor, Saul, getting changed into a totally different man, and now I'm literally a weak individual being let down in a basket, (laughs) Right, helplessly sitting in a basket and his ministry forever changed. It looked totally different. He was more like those other men before he was saved. And I think he's just giving that as a summary saying, This is this is what I have to boast about now. You wanna talk about your first day of ministry? here's mine. Threw me in a basket and let me down out of a window so I could survive. Right? (laughs) That's how it all got started. So we're gonna stand, we're gonna pray. You know, I would encourage you twofold, certainly to beware of anything that would be stealing your simplicity in Jesus Christ. Or even know that passage, because even if it's not you right now, all of us are going to have some friend or somebody who starts to get caught up in stuff. And they might start asking you questions. You ever think about this? You ever see this? You ever check out this guy on YouTube? And you should know this passage. You should be able to go there and say, you should read through this and think about this a little bit. That's important for us. You know, the other thing I would simply say is, if you need God's grace, wherever he has you, to be his servant, it's there for you. And you can gladly boast in your weakness. You can walk in that simplicity freely. And God is very easily pleased in those things. More so than we are very often. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your goodness toward us. We thank you again for your word. Thank you for the example of this man that you've left for us. And Lord, we do pray that you would guide our fallible hearts and minds into your truth. And don't let us be deceived from the simplicity that we have in Christ. And, Lord, we also just pray that you would allow us to remain faithful servants right where you have us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that we don't face much of this immediate persecution, and we pray for our brothers and sisters around the world that do. But we ask, Lord, that you allow us to be a loyal, chaste bride for you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.